Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm a feminist, but the first time I ever got to meet today's guest, Mary Beard, I had to pretend to be way cooler than I was because inside I was doing a massive fangirl and outside, I was just being like, sure, chill. We're just equals, Mary Beard. Uh, and we had to do something at the British Museum where both of us gave our thoughts on, yeah, on on ancient relics. And we both made vid- wow. both made videos for this uh, for the, for an exhibition about the uh, the feminine, divine, and demonic. And so, and there were loads of other people, well, not loads of other people. There were just sort of five other people, I think, who did it as well. And I had to just go in <laughs> and yeah. just look at things and go, yes, this reminds me of this, or this is my feeling about that. And then so people would go along and they'd see my video and then they'd see Mary Beard's video. And I was just like, lol, because, you know. I love it. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. And I think they did want sort of, you know, people's contemporary take, you know, about things as well. But yeah. I just thought uh, a whole different league. It was a great, great honour to be able to do that. And I can't wait to meet her today. Oh, love it. I'm a feminist, but um, apart from Task Rabbit, without which I um I don't think my home would even have any doors. <laughs> do you do feel you know a, what it the, is? You, you call up a rabbit and say, hello, rabbit, would you come and fix my door? Well, it's not a rabbit, is it? It's a man. Oh, well, it could be a it's woman. It's a man that Some... can build your flat pack for you. I'm a feminist. It can not. be a woman, but I'm yet on my scroll to find a single woman on Task Rabbit. My son wouldn't have his scooter that he got for his birthday <gasps> if it weren't for Task What, because the, the Task Rabbit put it together? Yeah, because I didn't even open the box. I just knew, for me, that is, well, not just a two to three day job in what took him under an hour, 
but also the stress it would have caused me would have taken definitely minutes off my life. And I thought it's not worth it. Yeah, I absolutely understand that. And it and and, also, and it costs more to have someone a man come round and build it than it did for the scooter, which is embarrassing. Oh God, that is embarrassing. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but also it gives somebody local a job who likes doing that because I know I yeah. know people who do task rabbit because they're like I don't have to work for anyone else. I do my own thing. I've, yeah. I've set my own hours. They're like acting or writing, and they just go okay. Mm. I need a couple of jobs today, and they go off and do it. It's I, great. Yeah. I, I just I feel like I'm a feminist, but now I feel like I'm a better feminist than you because in the time it took you to tell that story, I looked on TaskRabbit under flat pack assembly and the 15th person came up was a woman. Okay, okay. Do, I well. admit, I admit there's no other women doing flat pack assembly on the app as I scroll now. There will be loads, but I am a feminist, but I think I live in a less feminist area of um than you in terms of task okay, rabbit. I'm scrolling, there's still only female one woman. Availability. There's still only one woman. Yeah. Oh, it's it's not good. It's not good. Women, we need to get out on yeah. task rabbit. Is it is this okay, minor home repairs. Let's see what we've got here. Let's see. This is <laughs> this is this is me desperately hoping to find Come women. on. Come on. Oh, it's it's doing its little buffer. It's doing its little buffer thing. Come on. Do you remember, uh, in the early days of this podcast where there used to be a challenge and then realised actually if you're going to do these this frequently, how can we ever do the, all the... Get, one of our challenges could be mm. to put ourselves on <gasps> TaskRabbit and make ourselves idea. available yeah. I mean, to build somebody's flat pack. But put ourselves on... I'd put myself on a so cheap that not only would I get chosen straight away, but that it would be fine if it took me nine hours. To build someone's Well, that's the scooter. thing. And these people are charging... And a lot of swearing and crying, spitting. People don't want to pay for that. They don't want to pay for that. They want someone to come in and do it, who could do it in an hour, so they only get one hour or two hours, you know, pay. It's awful, but that'd also get such a bad review. You'd never have to do it again. This would be a one-trick challenge. You're right. I can't find anyone doing minor home repairs. This is, all, no. this is extraordinary. Wow. It is extraordinary. Task Rabbit. Wow, okay. Women, we need to get we need to get more women on Task Rabbit. I can sort of see though why sometimes women don't want to just go to a random's house and yeah. go into their house and then, you know, build their IKEA table slash, you know, fix their window um mm. without any protection. Where if you work for a company, there are definitely companies. There's a company I think called Big Strong Girls. Is that right? Or was that a TV show? Oh, I don't know. That sounds cool. There's, there are definitely companies that do it, but I think with company, you've got a bit more protection. Um, and right. uh, so I, maybe that's what it is. Or maybe someone can write in and tell us. I'm a feminist, but I went to see Arsenal ladies play live at the Emirates against Aston Villa. I don't know if you're meant to say live. I don't know if you're meant to call halftime an interval. <laughs> I don't know if you're meant to describe yourself as sitting in the audience. But I did all those things. But mainly I'm a feminist, but throughout the 90 plus minutes, the majority of my thoughts, over half of my thoughts, weren't necessarily about the game. <laughs> I 100% feel you on that. It was my, I went with my girlfriend, son and some mm. friends and um, my girlfriend's got a big crush on Rachel mm. Daly. And it was funny because we were sat down the Arsenal end so her constant commentary on what Rachel was up to, mm. as opposed to wherever the ball was, was, that was the main figure of fun. But I, it was distracting. 
<laughs> I'm a feminist, but that's bad, went, isn't it? I went, I'm a feminist, but I went to the football and spent most of the time just think about bums. seeing the footballers. <laughs> yeah, that's just thinking about just look, just thinking. God, look at that bum. Oh, yeah. God, look at that one's bum. Oh my God, look at that one's bum. Well, it's just ninety I minutes mean, of that. I mean, they're so. It's great that their bums are they're likely so to their be. Bums are so great. They've all got great. There wasn't. A, there was not. A, there wasn't a bad bum on that bitch for the whole time, and there's so many substitutions. I mean, just, in my world, yeah. all bums are great bums, but I do know what you mean. Yes, they're, of they're athletic. Absolutely, you know, bums that could you could pick up something in. You know, you could. Yes, pick up absolutely. A chair bums are going to hurt yourself if you tried to kick yeah. it. Yeah, exciting. Yeah. Joyful. I'm a feminist, but on the football theme, uh, I read that Eric Cantona, the footballer, uh, yeah. was bringing out a live album. His debut album is a live album. And Great. the BBC headline was Eric Cantona, the singer. This is his quote. The Rolling Stones should support me. And oh. all I could think was, wow, I'm going to die never having that kind of confidence. I won't have that confidence on my deathbed about, you know, I, I'm just like, there's just, there's no, imagine as Eric Cantona, as in yeah. the 90s, U.R. Cantona, U.R. Cantona. Yeah. Um, French footballer. Really famous for scissor kicking an audience member in the face. Is he? It, again, it's not an audience member, I don't think, but. No, I think you are in the crowd. Yeah. They call it crowd. crowd. But he, uh, presumably a fan, but he thinks the Rolling Stones should support him. Isn't that fascinating? Wow, we The Rolling Stones should yeah. support him. I'm not sure I want that sort of confidence. No, it's just more fascinating to me that anybody yeah. thinks that. Uh, that any any yeah, incredible. That anybody would have a fee anybody ever would think that. Uh it just it I just was looking at him in awe. And it was both, I'm both repelled and, and drawn and magnetised in equal measure to a man who was famous playing football in the 90s. To be fair, he's an actor as well. But bringing out not just his first album, but a live album, which nobody does. Nobody brings out a first mm. live album. Not unless, I don't know, they're, maybe they're a band member gone solo who already is a very competent, you know, well-known musician. Magician, musician, musician. Um, and... He'll be doing that next. He'll be saying Darren Brown should be supporting me on his magic tour. <laughs> he probably will. And I just looked at it and went, I'm so repelled by it, but also fascinated by it. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just never going to yeah. have that kind of confidence. And what would it feel like? But it's a bit like, I think, what would it feel like to have a penis? It's just an abstract, <laughs> interesting thought. I'm a feminist, but um, I've recently caved and bought my son a 15-pound bottle of squash. What? I know. So there is a brand. I'm not going to say its name. It's squash. It's coconut water and squash that a rapper and a wrestler have brought out and they have marketed to children, <gasps> tiny children. And my son and all of his friends are obsessed with it. It's as much about collecting the flavours as it is anything. And they've started bringing out limited edition ones. And he's gone on and on and on and on and on and on. And I'm a soft touch. And I spotted one of these limited edition. Or I spotted two of them in town the other day on my way back from a meeting. And I thought, oh, why not? I'll get. And I picked them up. I took them to the till. And the man, he was embarrassed behind the counter, went, it's 30 pounds. 
said, oh, my God. How big is it? I said, pardon. And he went, they're 15 pounds each, like 500 mils. No. It's squash. And I said, pardon? And then in a moment of madness, I went, I'll just have one of them. I know. I thought, I'll just have one of them and I've hidden it. It's going to have to be a Christmas present because I can't, I can't believe I've done it. And what's really tickled me is because all of my son's friends are all obsessed with this drink, there is a future episode of Motherland in how funny it is watching all of us guilty middle class, seemingly lefty liberal parents uh, acknowledge the fact that we've all caved and they've all tried it. (laughs) And um, I had really good fun watching another parent the other weekend being like, he hasn't had this before. He wouldn't normally have this. Yeah, yes, you can have a sip. Yeah, yeah, right, have a sip and then put it away again. Uh, well, he won't be taking it into school, just so you know. Um, we're all we're all flapping, but we're also all caving. <laughs> I thought you meant. And we've learned that my integrity has absolutely I you meant has it, got it some. It weighed bounds. fifteen pounds when you said a fifteen pound bottle. No, it cost fifteen pounds. Uh, I thought you meant some ginormous for squash. Yeah. Uh, no, it's some massively overrated branded drink. Wow. I've refused to say its wow. name. I'm going to look it up though. Because I have to know. I'm mm. feminist, but I have to know what the branded squash is. I'm so sympathetic to you as a parent, though, because you just want to make them smile, and it's going to make a big, mean yeah. a big deal to him. And whatever's the thing, it's when also you're a kid, not even as nice as that, Deborah. You want to make them shut up when they go on and on and on and on and on, day after day after day. Eventually, you go. Yeah. Wow. A limited edition squash. What world we're in? I disgust no, myself. No, it's not about you. It's just the world is in. No, the world's gone. The world is wild. Yeah. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Squadcast, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Jessica Vostigu, and a very special guest, Mary Beard, talking about the Romans. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Our guest today has been described as Britain's best-known classicist. She is a fellow of Newnham College, Cambridge, and Royal Academy of Arts Professor of Ancient Literature. She's very impressive. I feel a little intimidated already. Her new series, Being Roman, is coming soon to BBC Radio 4. Please put your hands together and make incredible woohooing noises for the wonderful Mary Beard. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, oh my crumbs. Oh. Flattered. Now, Mary, this is an absolutely gripping series that you've done about ancient Rome. And whenever I think of ancient Rome, I think of men. Mm. And did you did you know about this TikTok trend, Mary? Uh, look, uh, I know a horrible lot about the TikTok trend, and I know that there are some blokes, and I think it is only blokes, who think about Rome, the Roman Empire, three times a day or three times a week. Uh, I, I when I'm asked about this, I usually say that's nothing. I think about ancient Rome. All the time, right? (laughs) These men are fucking slacking. But, but, you know, when they say they think about ancient Rome, we know what they're thinking about. They're thinking about posh white men Mm. in togas or little military Mm. skirts. They are not thinking about slaves. They're not thinking about women. And, you know, one of the things we've been trying to do in this series of programmes is to say there are many more sorts of Roman 
out there, you know. Some yeah. of those some of those posh white men are, you know, I I work on them. I find them quite interesting. But the point is, they're not the only thing that counts as Roman. Mm, and yeah. you know, it does actually half half the human race. It doesn't start and end with Russell Crowe. Jessica Foster Q, <laughs> how many times a day do you think about ancient Rome? I, I why am I not aware of this TikTok trend? I don't think I've ever been aware of a TikTok trend. Mary in my life. Beard, would you please waste your extreme talents and intelligence? Thank you, I'm so sorry. Explaining to Jessica Foster Q the TikTok Roman the, trend. Uh, there is a absolute viral sensation right. of a little TikTok vid, which yeah. started off with an influencer asking her bloke. How many times do you think about the Roman Empire? And he said, oh, you know, well, you know, three times a day, three times a week. And this, not only did that, that went viral, but also um, everybody else started making little TikTok uh, movies of their blokes saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, at least, at least, you know, seven times a month, you know. Oh, I love it. (laughs) You uh, you You know, the question is, you know, why? You know, why? It's are- got such a deep place in our psyche. I feel so. I don't think about it often enough. I'm going to think about it more, <laughs> having having heard a, a glimpse into this new series. We got taught in primary school. I'm sort of waiting. My son's just turned eight, and I'm waiting for him to get to this juicy stuff at school. It's the first time he's done any sort of history at all, and he, it's the Victorians they've started with. But I remember at primary school. That's when we got this stuff, the fun yeah. stuff. We got Romans, we yeah. got Egyptians, and then that was it. That's, I don't yeah. think we got any ancient history again after that. No, we just did World no. War Two about no. nine times. No, that, that, you know, it's changing a bit, but that's Good. the real problem. You know, the, 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 the really ancient stuff you feed to little kids, they get interested, but they never get a chance to, to learn about it again when they're kind of, uh, you know, perhaps a little bit more grown up. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it kind of is slightly infantilised. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it then does become a Victorian's World War something, and um, well, I don't know um, the Elizabethans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I went to school in Australia, and it seemed to be ancient Egypt and Gallipoli, <laughs> the first, Anzacs in the First World War, over again and again and again on a loop. Yeah. Uh, yes. Essentially, that's my memory. Yeah. yeah. This is partly what this show is trying to, you know, to put right, to, to fill in some of the the bits that you didn't do at school. Um, and of course, all the stuff that you've forgotten, you know, you remember a few things from when you were eight, but not all that much. No. And perhaps that is, like you say, infantilised version of it. And also... You know, the starry, sexy, gory version of it, yeah, ironically. Yeah, it's like yeah. we've got a pretty low bar there. Whereas, and you certainly just don't hear anything that happened to women at all. No, like, no. And, it, and it, it is there so much of what has been found. Am I right in this? Absolutely correct me if I'm not. But what has been found has been written down by men. So yeah. I feel like from what we've heard, uh, no. you know, the little glimpse we've been allowed into this series, which I'm so excited about. But it, it does feel like you are getting often a husband's or an ex-lover's or a man's version of a woman's story, even now, is all we've got to go on. I think it's true that what we really miss, not entirely, but very largely, we miss a woman writing her own side of the story. Now, some of those 
accounts did once exist. You know, the Emperor Nero's mum wrote her autobiography. Um, sadly, it has not survived. But my goodness, what a read that would be! You know, um, yeah. Uh, but all the same, if you kind of, if you get your kind of mind into gear and to say, look, I'm looking for the women. I'm looking for the women that are doing interesting things. Um, uh, even if you are seeing them in part through the eyes of men, which you know. Hands up, that's what in part you are doing, mm. very largely are doing. There are still women's stories there that yeah. you can tell. You can still get a sense of, you know, battling women, feisty women, um, you know, w- women who are actually operating in the world, mm. uh, which the traditional blokish story does just miss out. You know, as I say, uh, you know, I'm. I'm a classicist, and I think some of that blokish story is actually quite interesting. Yeah. I've sort of spent my life in, you know, studying it. Um, but it's not the only story that there is, and that's mm. that's what we're trying to get over. There's, you know, there's different stories uh, from the Roman world about ordinary people as well as about posh people, and about women and slaves as well as mm. free, influential men. Mm. On that note, um, in one of the episodes we've heard. But is there was there a blurred line sometimes between a slave and a wife? Uh, well, um, yes. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. And, and one of our wow. one of the characters in in this series is a woman called Regina, mm-hmm. um, who's you know a girl from the St Albans originally. And we have wow. all we all we know about her is her tombstone. And a tombstone put up by her husband tells us that she, you know, he is the loving, grieving husband, but she was once his slave. He had oh, freed God. her yeah. and married her. And that is not uncommon in is the Roman st- world. Is that the same St Albans that's now sort of the forefront of the Tory belt just above London? It is. You know, Amazing. This is, this is a, a woman called Regina. Um, she's, uh, uh, no, you know, she means queenie, yeah. really. She's, she's yeah. called queenie. She marries. Actually, she marries um, her, her ex-owner, who's a Syrian. He's from Palmyra. So, you know, you start to see kind of... Uh, in Britain, and they end up near Hadrian's Wall in South Shields, um, wow. uh, and you can start to see the sort of the ethnic diversity, but also you start to put the women back in. So the one mm. tombstone at a stroke reminds us that there was this guy from Palmyra, you know, perhaps serving in the army there. It's hard to know, and he's married the um, well, she's not actually an Essex girl. I'm afraid she's a Hertfordshire girl, um, but she's married them after being freed. He must have bought her at some point. But to frame that compassionately, we're seeing a brutal enslaver who believes he can own a person, yep. then uh, quote unquote, free yeah. that person, let stop, stop enslaving that person, and then say, actually, I want you sexually. And could would we not now look at that and say, is that woman not yeah. being sexually yeah. assaulted continually I, by I, a man who's enslaved that, her? That that is the, the central point at issue, really. And I think that um, uh, I think he probably didn't start sleeping with her only after they got married. Oh, I was going to say, you know, slave. But then in that case, he was not sleeping sl- with her; he was no. raping her. So just that's, to- you might, yeah. 
the the background. I mean, we know about this woman from about fifteen lines, fifteen words of Latin. Right? Wow, right. And of course, what we're doing is we're always filling the story. We're in. filling in yeah. the blanks, yeah. And we fill it in in very different ways. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is this: this tombstone was found in the nineteenth century, and. When the first archaeologists looked at this, they told a completely different story from what we tend to tell. Mm. It was, here was this beautiful temptress from Hertfordshire who won the heart of the Syrian guy who became passionately um, involved uh, with her because because he fell in love, (laughs) right? Uh, to be fair, that's how the Daily Mail would sell it now. You know? And so, so you've got... And, uh, and that's a very, very strong version in yeah. how, of how this story is told. We tend to do exactly what you just did, Deborah. We, t- we tend to, to say, look, this is about exploitation. Mm. And, of course, this is where whose side of the story we have makes a difference because... Uh, We've got his side of the story put up uh, in, in loving tribute to the ex-slave, then wife, who has died. We have no idea what her side of the story is. I and can I think take one... a stab, though. I can well, take a good guess that if you're enslaved uh, by somebody. And am I also imposing a uh, contemporary value because a woman who... If your only economic advancement is marriage, am I? It's a big old step up. Equally, imposed, marriage at the I time in... was being owned. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, just another yeah. type of being owned. <laughs> yes, you could oh, say it one sort, one sort of slavery to another. But I think why these things are so interesting are partly because they do pose these dilemmas for us. You know, you have to say, am I am I imposing my view here? Um, you know, it's very easy to see how these guys in the nineteenth century were over romanticizing this we can see their their mm. their very dubious assumptions i mean but then you have to say well what are what are my assumptions about this relationship and we have no idea how she um she came into slavery um and one way she it might have happened is she might have been sold by mum and dad Oh, God. I mean, that is not a that's not an unparalleled um, way of you know, uh, being enslaved. So you have, and I think I do to some extent, have in have in my mind a kind of a very brutal form of slave market with human commodities being auctioned off to the highest bidder. Now. It's not impossible that that's how Regina ended up being owned by Baratis, is his name. Um, but it's also possible that she fell into slavery in much less kind of stark ways that, mm. you know, he picked her up, you know, mum and dad sold her, that it was a private deal or whatever. Now, that doesn't make it any better, but it just complicates the picture a bit. Mm-hmm. Was enslavement always as brutal as it was? Because I think we get a lot of our picture, most people do, I'm sure you don't as an historian, but most people get our picture of enslavement through um, through America. America, yeah. And the brutalities of American enslavement yeah. and, and the legacy of that to this day. Was Roman enslavement like that or was it various things was it could it have been servitude and could it have been also as brutal as what happened in america it's 
It's various things. It's various things. I mean, the crucial thing is it isn't, there is no racial divide in Mm. in slavery uh, in the ancient world. So, I mean, if a Roman thought of a slave, you know, close your eyes, think of a slave, uh, he was probably going to think of a redhead German you know, than, uh, rather than a, a black African. So you, you haven't got that sort of obvious racial division. And that makes, I think, a, a big difference. But I think it comes in, in all forms. I mean, the kind of slavery we know least about is probably the most brutal. The slaves mm. who were agricultural slaves or the slaves who were working down the mines. Um, and I, th- I would be very surprised if that was any less brutal than what we assume from the American South. The slavery we know more about is urban domestic slavery. And there is still a kind of commodification. It is a, an appalling commodification of, of of a human being, but it usually has an end point. That mm. m- most domestic slaves are freed. So, so Regina on Hadrian's Wall was not unusual in being freed. She probably wasn't unusual in being married. And this is, it says so much about my level of maturity, but it's more of a Dobby the house elf yeah, situation, yeah, you know, at times. Yeah, than a, yeah, yeah. But it's. I, I think that it's very, very hard to know how to nuance. Mm. One's disapproved. I mean, you know, nobody is yes. going to say, "Oh, this is a fine thing." Oh, it's super. It was just some people did used to say, "Oh, it's just a bit like being a, a you know, nineteenth-century domestic servant." No, it wasn't. You were no. not free. And I think one of the um, the most extraordinary bits of of actual, not violent, but sort of personal brutality that I know about slaves is the habit of rich Romans of giving their slaves away as presents. Mm. And that's where I start to see really what the impact of slavery mm. is. You know, it's not actually not actually the the violence. I'm sure there was some deplorable violence, but it's the sort that uh, the sort of situation we have plenty of evidence for it of a master saying, "Oh, that's been a lovely dinner party we've had. Now do take the slave home and have him as yours." Now that's where you think uh, uh, I'm coming up against a sort of turning of a human being into an object in a way that is that is really, really vivid. And if that yeah. human being had relationships in that house or their son yeah. their son was working in the another part of the 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 ha- suddenly they're gone and they don't get a chance to say goodbye because they're like a parting gift like or take a bottle of wine with you that's it is you know it is take a bottle of wine with you or a kind of party in your party mm. bag mm. you'll find a human being yeah. and that human being has not been consulted is just can be shipped off wherever their owner mm. decides and again in terms of how anachronistically we imprint our current i mean in terms of all the things we've been talking about you know even now i mean even a post me too moral sensibility onto hearing these stories and learning these about these lives. But in terms of that, I mean, the gifting of a, we wouldn't even treat animals like that. Take in my, our lives now, you know, yes, and we look yes, sometimes no, even well, look at yeah, farming like that and think, no, no you can't right. separate no, them from no, their, you know, yeah. isn't that that's it, it, how how yeah. far we've come yeah, yeah. <laughs> in I, a well, way? Uh, I do, but we do treat animals like that though. Like we just kill, we just slaughter them. 
And we take no, but out. I mean, that, but that increasingly there's a movement to say that the, the, the personness of animals is like you can't do. How can you, you know, that part of some reasons why people might not eat meat is because as part of that process <gasps> in farming, it requires taking an animal away from its family or whatever. But, you know, I'm just saying it's so complex. We certainly wouldn't treat a pet like no, that. Wouldn't you wouldn't say, say we take, take the cat home. Cat. You've been, no. thanks for being such lovely company. Please do take a, take a puppy. That's right. You know, at the end of the dinner party, you say, oh, we've got some lovely kittens here. Don't yeah. you want them? You know, that would not seem... On the other hand... <laughs> Deborah's I, nodding because she'd love I, that to happen I, to her. I, I'm just saying, it's what we do do. We, we, it is. We go, do you we, think? A friend has a litter of puppies and says, yeah, would you I suppose. like one? And we go and get it. We bring it home. Yeah. To be fair, cat mothers uh, start shunning their babies. So it's not yeah. like my cats are like, where's my mum? Uh, you know, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that but for a second. I'm just clarifying. My cats are very much like, where's my mum? And one of them's lying there right now oh. trying to behave oh, as if no. I'm its mum. I mean, sorry, sorry but, Mary, uh, we veered off over a Sorry, Mary, this does happen. I'm it's so right, sorry. It's all right, I'm going to I'm going to force my way back into the yes, conversation. Please. Sorry, this is not about puppies <laughs> right. or kittens. I'm so sorry. Is, We've but, derailed feminism I, for kittens. This is embarrassing. I, I think that... <laughs> You two are a bit, just a little bit, falling into the idea that things have got better. Okay. And I, I mean, it's very common, you know, with with in, in both in school teaching and in university teaching, you can start to talk about Roman slavery, and or you can go round Roman slave quarters with a group of students in a Roman house. You can see what it looks like, and you say to them. Um, would we do this now? And they say, oh, no, oh, no. Um, so confident in the idea of human progress. And you say, well, don't you think there are some people? You know, what about what is modern slavery? Mm. Are there anybody mm. in our world who is uh, living like this? Well, yes, there are. And where do you think your smartphone is made? And mm -hmm. by whom is it made? And, uh, I mean, again, I think one of the, one of the payoffs from looking at the distant past is it really does help you look at your uh, look at yourself and you think yeah. you know we're different from them but are we better um and what what would what is someone in 200 2000 years time going to say about how we behave so mm -hmm. i think it puts i think looking at the romans is interesting in itself but it partly puts you on the spot mm. about yeah. your own behavior mm. i've literally just written about this in my book mary so when you read my book as you inevitably will because i'll send it to you and force you to read it <laughs> so you can give me a quote uh I don't want you going, she got that from me, because I, I can send it to you literally as we get off the phone. Yeah, no, no. So yes, you can yes. go, she did, she's she's already written that. Um, uh, <laughs> I love I, it that you've slipped that in I there. I just then. do need, I need to clarify, because I don't want Mary Beard to think I'm plagiarising. Um, I just like the, I've got <laughs> from what you just said, Mary, this idea of a timeline in, in children's histories classes in 2000 years time, where we start with mm. the ancients and their types of... In, Slavers and Baratis, and then they'll skip straight to Andrew Tate. Mm. Yeah, and we'll also skip to care homes, won't we? Yeah, mm. we'll say what? What? So, what did we do with the frail elderly? Mm. And I, I always think it's very, very good. Uh, um, it's a good prompt always to say, "What will people in the future think we're mm. so bad at?" You know? mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 That is a hundred percent the chapter of my book you're stepping on now, Mary. Now Oh, I love it. Sorry, Debs. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I in fact I would love you to read this chapter of my book before I publish it, because you'll say there's all sorts of things wrong with it for sure. Ah. 
Never. Never. No. <laughs> Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Deborah. We're coming to the Soho Theatre in London for four nights only, starting on the 1st of November. So it'll be the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th. These will almost certainly be our last live recordings of 2023, certainly in the UK. So please come and see the year off with us. On Wednesday, the 1st of November, I'll be joined by Alison Spittle. On Thursday, the 2nd of November, it's Kisa. On Friday, the 3rd of November, the co-host will be Jessica Foster-Q, and we will finish Saturday, the 4th of November, with Chaparat Kasandi. All shows are on at 9.30, and the bar will be open after the show. For tickets, go to SohoTheatre.com. You can also get ad-free episodes of The Guilty Feminist from Patreon, Apple, or Acast Plus, and we'd love it if you could find a moment to leave us a five-star review and follow us in your podcast app. It really does help other people find the show. And now, back to the podcast. You're such an icon, Mary. I'm just so constantly blown away by you. Could you tell us about Turia? Because I found mm. you at one point say it was, it's a real temptation for us to look at her as a mashup of Joan of Arc and Nancy Drew. But, <laughs> yes. but, we're, but we're only hearing about her from her husband. But yeah. he wrote this is quite unique. screams. Yes. Yeah. He wrote a tombstone that was yeah. like a whole edition of Take a Break about yes. their lives. Yes, <laughs> like yes, a Wikipedia entry tombstone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we have two women in this series. Uh, you know, and one we have about fifteen words on, which is Regina, and the other we've got columns and columns of stuff about her life, written by her grieving husband, and it. Obviously, again, seeing it through his eyes. But he goes through, and it doesn't all survive, um, but enough enough survives so that we can get the picture. And we find her having this most extraordinary battling life. Um, she starts off 
being engaged clearly quite well to um, the husband. Um, just before they get married, um, her parents are both murdered on their country estate. We have no idea what caused the murder, whether it was, you know, a hit squad or, you know, a domestic. No idea. Um, and she has to kind of try to on her own, because it's the middle of the civil wars at Rome, she tries to and succeeds in bringing the murderers to justice. Yeah, then she's going to inherit um, and have at least some kind of cash to live on. But her grasping relatives all start to come in, so says the husband, and try to challenge the will. So she has to deal with them to get the money. Then her husband, who keeps being on the wrong side in the civil wars, he gets um, exiled and doesn't have anything to live on. So she's kind of sending him her jewellery, keeping the show on the road so she can support him. Then there's a very nasty ruling hunter in Rome at the time. um, And she goes in front of one of the men in the junta to say, I want my husband back. You know, this he should be able to come back home now. And she's successful, actually, but she gets bashed up. He he turns the heavies on her and she's beaten black and blue. Um and then the husband does come home and and they they settle down in what ought to be kind of peaceful uh marriage and he praises her in, you know, terribly, terribly traditional Roman ways, you know, you know, after all this kind of daring do of her, you know, the early career, she's, you know, she's modest and obedient and goodness knows oh, what. Um, then the end of the surviving bit of this tombstone, um, we hear about their fertility problems. They haven't got any kids. And in, in a traditional Roman way, um, of course, the fault is with the woman, right? Mm-hmm. That is um, fertility problems, not entirely, but by and large, if you can't have a baby, it's because the w- woman can't have a baby. What she then does is say, because it's my fault, I so want you to have a family. Um, let's get divorced and you can marry somebody else and I'll kind of stay around as household manager, right, and look after your new wife and the kids. And we'll be oh, a... Have a sort of threesome, but we won't be married any longer. Did she really say that though? Because I feel like that's very much a man's interpretation of what a woman said. I don't. Did she? Did she? There could have been a. Well, there could have been lots of ways in which she, in an empowered way, offered the idea of a thruple. But there yeah. could also that could also obviously be his spin on either making up for his cutting his own losses in terms of fertility or any other thing. You know, any other failing on that his part for them to conceive but equally who i mean we, we yeah we just don't know or, no. or was there a third member and he's saying she was up for it it was yes. she was fine with it by the way like you know yeah that's right yeah that's fine a great excuse for the adultery yeah. that's already happening i mean yeah that that again is i think why these things are so interesting even when we've got lots and lots of words as we have in mm. this case we i, I think what is most fun to do and what you teach students to do when they're looking at this kind of thing is to say, can we start to imagine what the other person's side in this story was? Can Mm. we, you know, we can't know what the background is. We can't know uh, what the other person would have said. But Mm. I think the one thing we can at least do is to start to wonder 
and to say mm -hmm. what different versions of this story uh, might other people have told. And so you have always to to take seriously, I think, you know, the surface account. This might be, you know, this might actually be the uh, grieving, loving husband who is devastated uh, by the loss of his wife, who has been a perfect partner to him in decades of loving marriage. That's what mm. it claims to mm -hmm. be, and that's what it might be. But you always have to say also, well, what if it wasn't quite like that? You know, if you look at modern obituaries, when people, mm. you know, uh, they, all the nasty bits, unless they're very, very obvious, tend to be smoothed over in yeah. the telling. In eulogies, you tend to make the best of things. You paint a happy picture. That's what eulogies do. What you know, whatever the rows you had, uh, um, you know, whether that was about your childlessness or not, um, they don't appear on the tombstone. <laughs> right. In the same way that you know, a marriage in itself was a more functional political. A uh, social tool rather than something arranged based on who loved who, but like feels like the sort of thing you'd put on a tombstone or in an obituary potentially would also have to serve similar purpose. Potentially, there's a you know what legacy are, is he choosing to leave here of her and of them, and also um you say in this episode that even for the time. It was quite eccentric to be that open about such personal matters. So there is a chance that he was yes. potentially a bit of a card. Yes. yes. <laughs> or like, you know, yes. genuinely yes. behaving yes. in a way that wasn't socially normal at all. So there is something either a bit fishy about his story when it comes to their fertility woes or about his personality and perhaps his, um, oh, his, how neurotypical he was, how, so, you know, all of these things. Who knows, you know, what his reasoning was for being so against the grain when it comes to that openness. Uh, I would not like people to go away and thinking that, uh, most Roman tombstones had this kind of level of intimate detail on them. Mm. Most of them, I'm afraid, sadly for the historian, don't. Um, and you do, you do wonder why. You know, this is mm. this is a one-off. It's the longest private inscription about anybody that we have from the Roman world, and it's a woman. But you think so, and you can't help but thinking, what's driving this? You know, mm. and you know the the obvious question about fertility is. Actually, maybe he couldn't get it up. Maybe that's the problem. Um, not, uh, not it, it wasn't her fault after all. And he, he jolly well knew <laughs> that, um, that there was, there was something which pointed in his direction. And uh, so I, I don't think that those speculations are pointless. I think that, you know, history is about partly wondering what the other story would be. And I don't think that you, um, as, as, as long as you don't start to believe your version of the story yeah. as truth, I think it's terribly important to uh, parade what a different version might be. I mean, the danger is when you start to believe in your own fantasies rather than think they're useful fantasies. Mm. Uh, they're, they're, they're possibilities that if he was having fertility issues and he was saying, no, 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 I would never... Uh, you know, I didn't want another wife and I'd rather have no children. And also I think it's hard for us to understand what no children meant then 
it, it had a different implication and impact than it does now. Uh, now it's much more emotional than again. Yeah. Fiscal and political mm, yeah. and all of those other things. Like in the Bible, it's it's incredibly important to have children, and people are renting their garments and you know weeping and in ways that aren't just about I'd really like a baby. They're about the the no, line of the right. family and and the God's not blessing me with a child and all sorts of things. But that's why then the 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 tradition of the handmaid as then rolled out in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's mm. Tale came about, it was, was a woman saying, well, I'll, I'll force my servant into having a baby and I'll raise it as my own. But interestingly, Turia said, no, 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 I, you marry somebody else and I'll be the staff, which is <laughs> extraordinary yes. that she didn't say, can't yes. we adopt a baby or, you know, surrogate a baby, yeah. but yeah. rather yeah. I'll become your housekeeper. If she did. It would have been perfectly expected, I think, that um, you could just take the slave's baby. Uh, Interestingly, this is a time, this particular moment when this tombstone goes up is when the Roman emperor is being very, very fierce on productivity of children. He's trying to to raise the birth rate. Um, He's giving particular privileges, financial and political, to people who have three living children. So in some way, that kind of issue may lie behind this, Mm. that the husband is trying to say, um, kind of, I was doing my best, but, you know, this was love. It's it's done Mm. against the background of quite a fetish about having three children. Three children was the thing to have, was it? Three living ones. Three living. You didn't count the dead ones, I'm afraid. The was so shit. And as you say, say, the present is very shit in a lot of the world. We we live in in a blip of history and geography. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, uh, the, one of the dangers of looking back at Rome and and rightly seeing how shit it is, and I, you know, mm. it, it is absolute shit. You know, nobody. You know, I think even a even a bloke probably really wouldn't want to go back to ancient Rome, and a woman certainly mm. wouldn't want to do. The danger is that we do get a bit self satisfied about progress and about mm-hmm. how much we've come on, mm. and uh, and yeah, of course, you know, it's um, in parts of the world that is absolutely true. But you know, there's some bits of our own society which don't. Which Romans would find very odd mm. uh, and despicable. Which, which bits would Romans find yeah. despicable about us? I think they would they would find what we do with the elderly despicable, and I think they'd feel that our penal system was the the idea of incarceration. Wow, uh, at, liberties at, being you know, taken I mean, worse I mean, than death. Yeah, I mean, Romans weren't kind of a, a load of liberal uh, judicial reformers, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but they didn't use incarceration as a punishment. Basically, it was a fine, exile, death, or a clip on the ear, really. And I think they would be completely baffled by the the notion that we spent enormous amounts of money incarcerating people who came out of prison and went on to do the same thing again. They would just mm. think this was crazy. I mean, it is. Well, it is. Mm. They'd be right. <laughs> when you put it like that. <laughs> there, there is a, there's a wonderful um, notice on the train that I go 
to London on from Cambridge. And it's on the first small first class carriage, which there still is. It says something like, anyone with a standard class ticket found to be sitting in this carriage will be liable to a fine of what, a thousand quid or six months imprisonment. It doesn't say think, that, does it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I've taken what? a photograph of it. And you think, I mean, I have no doubt that this this penalty is almost never, if not never, enforced. But the idea that someone with a straight face could actually put up a notice saying that sitting in a first-class carriage when you've only got a standard-class ticket could lend you... Six months. Six months in the neck. (laughs) What are you in for? Oh, I... I, Sorry. Sat in the wrong... I sat in a slightly bigger seat. I got a free coffee. (laughs) Had had a doily on the back of the seat. Yeah. I mean, yes. it was worth the risk. Um, God, that's incredible. And you're, is it a hangover from the Victorian? Because I always feel like you know, the Victorians had workhouses and orphanages, and and we've got rid of most of those you know, in, in institutions. And, you know, where they just sort of lock women up because their husbands said they were insane or something like that. But the ones that have hung over really are prisons and elderly care homes. That, and I'm not saying, by the way, if you, if you, that all elderly care homes are horrendous places, no. but I, I'm no. just saying the our idea... Prisons. I'm not saying that, but I, I, <laughs> and if you are listening and you are in one and you are happy in one or you're, you work in one that you're... You know, it, it, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that for a second. But I am saying the idea of it of it's, yeah, that we farm it's, old people yeah, into a building where uh, they all live with each other. Yeah, that, that's that's mm. absolutely right. I think it's you know there are good care homes and bad care homes, um, and you know I'm hoping very much that I end up in a good one. Um, but Wait, you've it's... got children who will not. I would say. <laughs> Aren't your children historians? Won't they? Uh, yeah. Won't they no. acknowledge that this modern well, travesty? We shall see. We, we <laughs> shall see. But, I, but I, you know, dream on. I think. But I, I mean, I think it is the idea that that at a certain point you're farmed out. You know that mm. that you um, you get put away mm. uh, with a load of other people your age, um, and you're not really seen about. You're not part of the community. You're in. The care home. Now, as you say, Deborah, that, that would be to be very unfair on some of the best care homes that there are, which do not mm. hide their residents away. But there is this sense that we take it for granted that at the at, in the closing that's just what years, we do. Yeah, that's what we do. We put people somewhere else. But again, we tend not to hear Granny's side of the story. Mm. And uh, I think with all these things, I mean, again, I, it it is a bit like you know thinking it. History helps you think about things from a different point of view. You know, I can well imagine some cases where the last thing that you'd want to be done to have happening to you is being looked after by your ungrateful kids. Um, you know, so it's mm. it's it's really about choice. It's, it's a terribly it's a terribly difficult one, and it's but there is a kind of sense that we, particularly as we got an aging population, we haven't start begun to work out what what we think they are for. You know what they can contribute mm. and how we can contribute to them. We've we've got we've taken some very very crude options. Mm. Uh, did you see that? Um, it's not really a documentary. It's one of those Channel Four experimental shows, to be honest with you. Uh, but it was they. They did a thing where they had children, like a small children's playgroup, come in and do their playgroup every day in an old person's home. And the children, mm. at first, some of the old people were like, oh, my God, this is going to be awful. 
And, but, <laughs> you know, like, oh, the last thing I want three-year-olds around, four-year-olds. But actually it became, and who knows, I mean, it was edited, so <laughs> who knows. But it was very moving because you saw older people become engaged and young and playful and you saw the children really bonding with the older people and asking questions the way you know children yeah. ask very uh, sometimes tactless questions but yeah. then grown-ups know that the child is only four and will answer them and it was really wonderful and I just thought we should not be a lot of I think the reason that people start to older people start to lose some of what they have mentally and physically is they are all together with other people who are in that same position and not with young people who are going can you help me tie my shoe or what's that or could you read this to me yeah uh, no i think it's it's something about the the powerlessness of the elderly and i think that's what would have would have um puzzled the romans because in roman culture um the the people who had power in the city of rome were the old and in fact if you you know we we talk about and people know Would what the old have actually been quite a bit younger then well that's, <laughs> that's part of it that's part of it but not as much younger as we think i mean okay. it, that um if when I mean, we know the the phrase you know we know about senators and the senate in rome everybody mm. kind of knows that well that actually means the old people that's, it comes from the word for old man. I mean, it's not oh, the old wow. women, guys. It's the the old yeah. man. Surprise, I think it is quite interesting about how old how old you would be in Rome, because up to a point, you're right, Jess. It's um, that there isn't in any sign in ancient Rome of, of, of kind of our oh, burgeoning eighty plus. Um, uh, demographic. That's true, but the idea that people that, that you never grew old in Rome is wrong. Mm. It, it, it is true that the average life expectancy at birth was about 26. But oh. that doesn't mean that most people died at 26. What it means is that 50% of people died before they were 10. Yeah. If you lived to be 10, you could expect a life expectancy that was not as... Um, advanced as ours, but more or less, there were there were plenty of fifty and sixty year olds around the city of Rome. It's just that children died of childhood diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, as I say, fifty percent by the time they were ten. Crumbs. Which is why, when you know, when you're thinking about uh, why having children is important, yeah. it's having living children yeah. that's yeah. important. Oh, Um, the past, again, is very grim, as is, as you say, the present. (laughs) What do you want people to take from this Radio 4 show? Mm. I want them to take, well, two things in particular. Um, First, that our, our standard image of... The Romans. You know, close your eyes and think of the Romans. Uh, we know exactly what people see. Um, togas, military skirts and um, white blokes yomping over conquered territory. Now, there's no doubt that's part of it, right? 
There is. There was uh, yomping. Uh, yomping went on. There was. There yomp- was yomping. <laughs> there was yomping. Okay. Um, you know, don't let's pretend otherwise. But that actually, the Roman Empire was full of all kinds of people that we often don't think about. You know, people like our slaves, our women. Oh, one of our programs is about a middle manager in Roman Egypt um, who is trying to arrange a a royal visit from the Emperor Diocletian. And, you know, it's a bit like somebody now trying to arrange a royal visit of King Charles. You know, there is enormous amounts to be done. You'd have to check the loser all right and you've got enough food and drink and the transport arrangements have been done. And there's this poor old middle manager writing letter after letter, because they still survive, saying, you have not yet got the bakery up and running and we're going to have a vast uh, kind of So it's a series of, of emails from a middle it's manager. Kind of, it's a kind of, the ancient equivalent of a load of emails. And you see... W1A, Roman time. get this glimpse of some bloke who... The kind of bloke who's usually lost to history, not a not a really mm. not a really powerful admin man, a local administrator trying to do his best. Just so, wondering if you saw, just bring it to your attention, yeah. just a nudge. Yes. On. So sorry that's, to trouble you. Well, and sometimes he loses it, and then he has to write up to his bosses and say, "Look, I've told them time and time again they've got to do this." So he's he's covering his own back. He's trying yeah. to get you know the the guys at the local level to refurbish the bakery and you 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 just see the sort of person that both seems quite familiar mm. but also it's just not normally not seen. We, you know, yeah. when we think about the Romans, we the history don't think, of admin. We don't think about the history of admin, do we? <laughs> and actually, there is that. Yeah. And, uh, there's the doctor, you know, a wonderful mm. doctor who actually seems to have invented the first anal suppository in the West. Um, you know, this kind of stuff. You know, yeah. uh, you know, Romans did all kinds of things, and so mm. we're trying to kind of give people a glimpse of. Just the difference. But I think we're also trying to give them a glimpse of all the different ways you can find out about these people. I mean, we tend to think of um, the evidence for Roman men being in, you know, rather serious works of Roman literature that survive, you know, the histories of Tacitus, you know, the histories of Livy, so forth. And that is terribly important. Enormous amount of that literature survives. But, you know, as with the middle manager, we find that we've got um, the discovery of his kind of papyruses from his filing cabinet. And we've got Turia, who we know from fragments of her tombstone, which actually at some point obviously got bashed up because it's been found all over the city of Rome and it's been pieced together in a kind of big jigsaw puzzle. Wow. And you know, there's similarly, uh, one, of, one of my very favourite of these characters is a little 11-year-old poet mm. who um, performed in a big poetry competition at the end of the first century CE. And he didn't win, but he was highly commended. And then he soon after died and his parents on the tombstone say, from hard work. (laughs) And here here we've got his tombstone on which they have written out the poem that he performed at the competition so we can still see what he actually said. And that 
was only discovered because they put his tombstone up very proudly. It was then later mm. used, you know, recycled in the later Roman walls of the city of Rome. Mm. And it was found in the 19th century um, when those walls were demolished. And there was wow. the tombstone of little Sulpicius Maximus holding mm. his scroll and with all this stuff about how he'd died of hard work. Oh, you know, he was wow. always, you know, and yeah. again, it's just all children. I mean, we think children of, and... yeah, and you know, we, you know, we've been saying that you don't hear about women, and that's true, and you don't hear about slaves. We, we hear very little about kids, about mm. you know, except that they're sort of treated as as if they were sort of just miniature grown-ups. And here on this tombstone, found in a demolition job in the late 19th century, here is the only poem we have written by a child uh, from the whole of the ancient world. You know, and wow. it's, you know, and you think, wow. I, you know, I think is when I go and see his tombstone, which is now in a... You know, <laughs> I thought you'd ask that. And I think the judicious answer is to say better than you might expect, right? Yeah. You, know, I, you know, I don't think it'll be being set in classics GCSE um, or A-level or on university courses. What's it about, but it's though? What's the poem about? It, it is rather weirdly, uh, he was given this subject to uh, almost improvise on. And it's about, it's the story of the... The young Terawai Phython, who is the son of the god of the sun. And Phython um, persuades his dad, who's the god of the sun, to let him drive the chariot of the sun. But Phython is a stupid young Terawai, actually, and he can't control the chariot. Yeah. And he nearly drives the chariot into the earth, which would have destroyed the earth. So the god Jupiter has to come along. And zap Phython. So Phython is killed in order to preserve the earth from his bad driving. Um, because he was, in other words, he was a, a young boy who was trying to do rather more than he was capable of. And it's hard not to put that together a little bit with mm. our boy poet, who was competing age 11 in an adult poetry competition. And perhaps he wasn't quite ready. Mm. And he was he was actually telling them the story of a, another teenager, mm. almost teenager, Art who wasn't imitating quite ready. Life. Wow. Art imitating life and wow. vice versa. So it was in a grown-up poetry competition. Sorry, I thought this was a school thing. Um, no, it, it, well, it's not absolutely clear. It could have been a junior competition, but it was a major city of Rome competition. There was This kid was performing in front of 7,000 spectators and the emperor himself. Wow. And it certainly looked, the implication that mum and dad give, and of course, they were a bit biased. The implication mm. is that it was in an, he was competing in an adult comp. Um, and it, and came away with a you know pat on the back from the judges. I think you've got an absolutely wow. fascinating job, Mary, and I think you do it absolutely <laughs> yeah. brilliantly to translate it all for us in such an accessible way. Um, is there anything you came to say today that you didn't get to say? No, I think that we've um, we've 
cover that. I mean, I think it is, um, you know, I, th I suppose my life's mission has been to um, encourage people to realise that the Romans aren't dull, you know. Mm. They're not just um, boring old yompers. Um, <laughs> some of them are, but they they are a whole range of different people thinking about their world in a different way mm. and leaving us their traces. You know, mm. we actually, um, you know, we've got their tombstones, we've got their papyrus letters. And, you know, to some extent, you have to sort of let those out from the university lecture room and share them with people mm. and say, look, this is actually, everyone, this is really interesting. Indeed. Yeah. Jessica Fostergear, is there anything you've always wanted to ask Mary Beard but been, <laughs> had, uh, not been close enough to ask her? No, not, no I've, I feel I've, this has been one of my favourite hours I've ever had. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, 100%. Jess. Just want to say thanks. Thank you. Um, Jess, do you have anything to plug? Anything you'd like the audience to know about? Um, I'm going on tour throughout the first half of 2024 with a brand new show called Metal. And um, it's on sale. I would absolutely love to have Guilty Feminist listeners filling the seats of this tour. And it's a whopper for me in terms of I'm going to lots and lots of places. So hopefully I'll be coming somewhere very near you if you're listening. Please come and see it. It's going to be, I'm working real hard at the moment to make it very funny. Amazing. I will totally be there. I'll be there with extra bells on. Mary, do you have an I'm a feminist but for us? We'd love to hear a Mary be a I'm a feminist but. I'm a feminist but when I find a mouse on the kitchen floor, I scream and call for my husband <laughs> and ask him to dispose of it. <laughs> Lovely. Excellent, excellent. Yes. Absolutely thrilled. Has that, happened? Has that happened recently? Uh, not recently, but several times in the course of our long marriage. You, 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 oh. have, you have, have you jumped on a chair shrieking? I, I, I run away. I just run away. Dead <sighs> mice, or dead bird. I mean, when we used to have cats and the, they brought in not just mice, but, they, you know, mm. pigeons. You know, mm. so there's this kind of sort of semi-dismembered semi -dismembered carcass. Mm. You know, I just think man's work this if men are paid to do anything is to clear up dead pigeons dead mice dead anything so yes. is it is the truth is mary you're a feminist but you believe that the pay gap means that the excess money that men make they for for that money they also have to clean up any dead birds brought in by cats or mice that are in the house i think I think that's a very generous way of putting it. Yeah. it, it you, what you're doing is you're making it seem kind of carefully and politically thought out. Well, actually, I'm just bloody scared. <laughs> <laughs> too honest, too honest. It's basically like you're writing an overly honest obit where you're telling too much, you're not, you're not spinning it enough. Um, yes, that's right, yes. <laughs> Mary, it's been wonderful to have so much of your time. And, oh, it's great uh, to great. Mary, could you tell us again, what's the name of your programme and where can we listen to it? The name of the programme is Being Roman and it's six episodes on Radio 4 starting uh, in November, but it's also available as a podcast on Sounds. That's very exciting. And any books or anything, anything else you want to plug while you're here? Um, I've got a, a book just out called Emperor of Rome, which um, looks at looks at some of those posh 
Romans at the top. Um, but instead of telling their biographies, what it does is it um, says, look, let's look at them and ask what the job description for being a Roman emperor was. What did they eat? Who did they sleep with? How did they travel? How many letters a day did they write? And it looks also not just at the guys at the top, because that's not what I do. It looks at all the people who um, kept the show on the road. Amazing. So we look at um, uh, the Empress Livia's masseurs. We look at her handbag carrier. Um, we look at the guy who is in charge of the napkins at the royal dining table. And we look at the guy who is in charge of all those tasters that um, that you found around the royal dining room, mm. um, not to taste if the food was any good or not, but to taste if it had actually been um, doctored with some mm. nasty toxin. And there is a walk-on part for the anal suppository. Amazing. Mm. <laughs> so that book is really about the yompers and those who made the yomping possible. Yes. <laughs> You know, and the women, you know, and, you know, I'm afraid it, it has quite a lot about, you know, lurid luxury, that's true. But he also reminds us that emperors did a hell of a lot of paperwork. Mm. Great. Okay. Well, we <laughs> look forward to reading that as well. Mary Beard has been an absolute honour and a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much. Thank you. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Jessica foster and our very special guest, Mary Beard. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Slinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Craftman, Gina DCO, Zainab Mohammed, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. You look perfect. You look like a perfect Roman. Yeah, I've spent all night in the yeah. vomitarium. I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> God, I've just been listening to your show, though. God. Um, yeah. The past is shit, isn't it? The past is <laughs> not a good time to live. I think no, that's... No, I mean, anybody ever says to me, um, oh, would you, you know, you must love the Romans. Would you like to go back to ancient Rome? And you say... No, thank you. you know, yeah. Or at the most, with a very definite guaranteed day return, you know. Yeah. <laughs> guaranteed day return. And an invisibility cloak and yeah. everything else. And, and yeah. also to be a man. Like, yeah. Don't have to go yeah. back as a woman, for sure. Uh, no. We should probably... Well. We should probably start. Um, yeah. Because Tom, but Tom might use this as a little... Funny bit, but I don't want it. I don't want anything else to get lost, you know, before we started, because <laughs> we everything we say will no doubt be gold. The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. 
Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, Click on content preferences, open political content and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now.